In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. And today we're joined by the great Tamar Hallerman up in Washington on, what, day 30-something of the shutdown. She's been all over the shutdown and she's also been all over every Georgia angle coming out of Washington. Yeah, it's it's been a really slow time. Nothing's been happening up here. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. It's been madness. As usual. But as this madness continues, we figured it'd be a good chance to look ahead at the next 11 or so months of the year and, and some of the big questions we're looking at. We did a sort of a recap of the biggest stories of last year. And now we want to look forward and cast that lens to the biggest stories of next year and of this year, I should say. And one of them is already sort of coming to fruition. It is, will Georgia emerge as a legit battleground state in 2020? And, and tomorrow, I think, I think we already know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. If the traffic, you know, we've been getting in D.C., just, just even on some of our congressional you know, our members of Congress is any indication. Folks are already starting to plow money and resources into Georgia. And of course, you're seeing this now with all the national attention surrounding Stacey Abrams, which we'll talk about a little later in the show. But one thing is abundantly clear is that the Brian Kemp-Stacey Abrams matchup last year was very much kind of a, a warm up to what's to come in 2020. And with Donald Trump on the ballot, there, there is no doubt that Georgia is going to be a battleground state. I, I went down with Stacey Abrams to Albany uh, a couple of days ago, where she said, "Hey, the answer is here. You know, Georgia. We've been asking for a while if Georgia is going to be a battleground state. Welcome to the present. It, it is now a battleground state. In 2016, we saw both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton pretty much ignore Georgia. Um, for you know, they had they had." Sm- small operations here, but they didn't spend any significant money on advertising. Neither of them visited Georgia after the primary. That's going to change coming into 2020, where you're going to see every Democratic candidate and Donald Trump spend a lot of time, energy, and resources in Georgia. Exactly. And and leading up to the gubernatorial race last year, you saw a lot of potential Democratic presidential candidates come down to stump with, with Stacey Abrams. You saw Cor- Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. Um, and, and you you written a, uh, wrote a story recently, Greg, about how, how Abrams has really become what you called the queen maker um, down here in Georgia. You're also seeing this with a lot of our house races, um, districts that as recently as last year, Democrats were not really spending a lot of money or attention on, like Rob Woodall's 
uh, seat in Gwinnett and Forsyth. All of a sudden, within <laughs> weeks or within days of this shutdown, we're already getting barraged by press releases about Rob Woodall. You're already seeing money being spent on online, and, and that's only going to continue. Same, same deal with Lucy McBath. Republicans are out for revenge after she took that sixth district seat from Karen Handel. And you're already starting to see um, all sorts of attention paid to every single thing she does up in D.C. Yeah. And to that point, we already have competitors for both Lucy McBath and Rob Woodall. Um, Senator Brandon Beach entered the race against Lucy McBath just weeks after uh, her victory. He he went in even before Karen Handel, who would be the presumptive front runner on the Republican side, even before she decided whether to get in or not. That's going to probably speed up her decision. Um, and there's about a half dozen other Republican names out there. Remember, this special election drew about 18 candidates in 2017. It won't draw that many next year, but you could you could very well see a very, very heated Republican primary with multiple candidates. Exactly. And big names getting in early, which means um, there, there's really going to be kind of an arms race to get this Republican nomination. Um, and, and, you know, kind of looking statewide to 2020, we, of course, have David Perdue running for, for his second and what he says will be his final term. He has been quietly kind of building up his campaign infrastructure, um, but he's definitely going to be leaning on his strong relationship with the president. And that, of course, will bring with it tons of national attention. I'm glad you brought that up because that's our next big question is who will challenge David Perdue? Chief, the, the biggest name on the list, and everyone who's listened to this podcast knows this by now, but is Stacey Abrams. Um, after her narrow defeat, by, by uh, Governor Kemp. She lost by about a point and a half. She has been very public that A, she's going to run for office again, and B, she's not sure what it is, but she might run for Senate. She's going to make up her mind by the end of March. But um, she's she, as you mentioned, is the queenmaker in, in Georgia politics. And um, what, I, what I keep on hearing from, her, from people around her is that She's kind of 50-50. She always had her sights set on running for governor. And I think even a couple podcasts ago, we talked about how she's very unlikely to run for U.S. Senate. Well, that's starting to change, I think. Exactly. She was she was up in D.C. Uh, last week or maybe the week before meeting with Chuck Schumer, meeting with Senator Cortez Masto, who's leading the uh, Senate Democrats campaign arm. So there is certainly some interest in that. And in the meantime, there's, there's a field of half dozen potential Democratic, uh, you know, candidates. And that field is entirely frozen right now. Everybody knows that they can't step on Abrams' toes and they're kind of waiting patiently in the wings for her to decide what she wants to do. People like former Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, uh, former congressional candidate John Ossoff. We've heard other names like uh, former gubernatorial candidate Jason Carter, Michelle Nunn, uh, Raphael Warnock, the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. So a ton of really interesting candidates candidates uh, with big names, but all kind of frozen as they wait. Yeah. And in fact, several of those candidates have publicly said they want Stacey Abrams to run. Um, Jason Carter says, as a politician, you've got to match the moment. And this is Stacey Abrams' moment. John Ossoff says he wants Stacey Abrams to run. Um, Teresa Tomlinson gave a very interesting answer when I asked her about, about the state of the race. Um, she has essentially said that it, she is very publicly vetting a race and she's likely to get in if Stacey Abrams doesn't get in. She wouldn't say she would she, that, that she wouldn't get in if Stacey Abrams um, got in the race. Um, so you may see a, a challenge, but I, I highly doubt, doubt it. But she said that um, anyone who runs for this office uh, should kind of honor Stacey Abrams if she doesn't 
get in the race by having a very solid campaign foundation to start with. And she touted her ability to raise money. She touted her military uh, uh, chops because she represents, uh, she, she was the mayor of Columbus, which is a very military uh, based town with Fort Benning right there. And um, she talked about her, her sort of a, a ability to appeal to suburbanites, just like Stacey Abrams is, and the rural, rural voters, uh, which Stacey Abrams kind of struggled to get. So that was the angle she took. And then there's, there's you mentioned Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's still out there. You mentioned there's a state representative, Scott Holcomb. I, I see both of them as, as doubtful to run, but their names are still out there. So they're still being bandied about as potential candidates. And and, and then there's the biggest, another big one, which was Sally Yates, who earlier said she has no uh, no inkling to run, that she will not run for U.S. Senate. So that took another big name off the board. And in the meantime, we're seeing Purdue certainly begin to fire up his campaign infrastructure, but he also doesn't seem to be in a huge hurry quite yet. Um, you know, with Johnny Isaacson, after he won last time, he immediately announced he's running again, kind of made that clear. But Purdue is not, you know, he hasn't rolled out a big re-election kind of intro rollout kind of event yet. He's kind of taken his time waiting to see who comes up and challenges him. But at the same time, you've seen him quietly take steps to prove that he is still in touch with people, particularly in the suburbs where Republicans really took a big hit in um, in the midterms. We saw just this past Monday uh, in celebration of MLK Day, he, he spoke, he took to the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church um, just to kind of Show everyone he's he's there. He's running. He's in touch with folks. Yeah, and a really interesting appearance because a he was on the same pulpit as Reverend, Reverend Warnock, who might challenge him, and b he he was with uh, Johnny Isaacson, who has made it a very uh, a tradition. To, to, he's attended, I think, the last ten or so of of these MLK ceremonies, um, and so David Perdue kind of joined his 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 um, the senior senator in that. And yeah, it was it was something of a message to, to to moderate voters in a way. I don't know if he he tailored it that way, but he wants to be sure he's in the public eye, not just in rural Georgia, but in Metro Atlanta. Because when he won his first Senate race in 2014, it was in part because he carried Cobb and Gwinnett counties by big margins, just like Governor Deal did. Well, in the four years since, we've seen those two counties flip dramatically. Uh, Hillary Clinton narrowly carried carried them, and Stacey Abrams pretty solidly carried them. And for Republicans, I don't know if they're going to, if they have their design set on reversing that trend in 2020, but they certainly need to cut the margins for those fast changing counties. Yeah. And, and for Purdue, he has his whole background as a former Fortune 500 CEO that that I think he's going to lean on quite heavily as he campaigns um, for re-election this year. And, and you know, he has a record now. He, he serves on the Senate Banking Committee. He talks a lot about the, the Senate's successful uh, effort to roll back the Dodd-Frank financial regulatory overhaul. He talks a lot about wanting to cut regulations. So we're going to hear a lot about that. But what was so interesting about this Ebenezer Baptist speech that he gave, he talked about his father, who was a superintendent, I believe, of Houston County Schools um, back in the 60s during desegregation and and kind of dealing with that and and seeing MLK as a personal hero. Um, I wonder if we're going to see more kind of personal stories like that as as he seeks to, um, you know, maintain his standing in the suburbs. And tomorrow I got to give you kudos for a non-Georgia native who lives in Washington. You pronounced Houston County the right way. <laughs> it's a tough one. Pecans, I get yelled at a lot for, and that one still feels weird. But Houston County, I got that one down. 
So quick side story on pecans, because I pronounce it pecans. I was on GPB radio a couple of days ago, and Scott Holcomb, the state representative we just mentioned, corrected me and said it was pecans. So the other day, I was at the governor's mansion for, for a Georgia Grown event, and Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black was there. So I asked him, what am I doing wrong? I'm, I'm a Georgia native. I've always said pecans. And he said, look, here's the secret. If it's above $3 a pound, it's pecans. But if it's below $3 a pound, it's So now I know I've been saying the hoity-toity pronunciation. Love it. That brings us to the other next question, what will Abrams do next? We touched on this before, but she's someone who's always kind of envisioned herself as a a state candidate, as a governor. Um, She wanted to be Atlanta mayor. She wanted to be the governor. So she's, she's focused on more state and local politics than federal politics. But when you've, when you came that close to winning the governor's race, and you're on the tip of a lot of national folks' tongues, right? You're 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 part of the national conversation. You're you're not just a rising star in the Democratic Party. You are a star in the Democratic Party. Maybe Jason Carter's right when you when he said that you've got to you know meet that moment, match that moment. What do you think? Exactly, but I can't help but wonder: being a chief executive of a state is a whole lot different than being a U.S. senator, where you're one of a hundred. You would be a freshman at a time when frankly, a lot of the powers in the executive branch's hands. I, I wonder if she would be happy in the Senate. That's a question for her to answer. And, and you know, we can only speculate about that. But Abrams, during, you know, when she was running for governor, disclosed that she wants to be president one day, or at least that was mm-hmm. her plan growing up. And, and something that we've seen more speculation on in the last few days, you know, she was up in D.C. again this week, meeting with Kamala Harris and, and Cory Booker. This idea, maybe she wants to be a running mate for one of them as they run for president. That's a very interesting possibility. What have you been hearing, Greg? And do you think that's something she would be seriously pursuing? Look, I, I, I would be shocked if she does not show up on these running mate lists that, that start being bandied about, you know, in a, in 18 months or so or 14 months or so. Um, remember, even even uh, former Mayor Kasim Reed was on some of the lists as, as a potential Hillary Clinton running mate. And depending on who the Democratic nominee is, it could make sense geographically, politically, um, to balance a ticket racially. If, if, if it's an older white male, who knows? Um, there's a, that's a long way to go. But I really would be shocked if she doesn't, if she's not part of that conversation in some sense. Um, whatsoever, especially as we talk about Beto O'Rourke running for president, p- potentially, and, and you know he 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 fell by a uh, even if I recall correctly an even broader margin uh, to Ted Cruz than Stacey Abrams did. So if he's seen as a viable candidate for 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 the White House, then you know Stacey Abrams supporters are looking at, hey, why isn't she part of this discussion? I'm personally very intrigued by the possibility of a Kamala Harris. Stacey Abrams ticket. You know, conventional wisdom is that when it comes to selecting a running mate, if you're running for president, you want somebody to kind of compensate for your weaknesses, maybe geographically, ideologically, racially. Um, But what's so interesting about the two of them, you know, this comes in a moment where I think especially Democratic voters are very hungry for not white males. Having two black women leading a ticket is is very intriguing. At the same time, they're, they're quite similar. They're both very progressive. Um, you know, they, they kind of balance each other out geographically. Um, but, I, you know, Stacey Abrams' candidacy for governor definitely, um, you know, they, they didn't want to adhere to the traditional wisdom. She ran to the left when normally Democrats in Georgia ran to the center and, and she came really close to winning the governor's mansion. Um, so maybe they take that approach all the way up to the, 
you know, to the presidential race. Maybe it makes more sense to keep exciting the base with a with a ticket like that. So I'm going to be really interested to see if we keep hearing Abrams' name in this this VP discussion. And one really interesting thing with with the uh, with the Harris candidacy is that. Uh, there is a lot of Georgia Democrats who are very excited about the potential that she would put her campaign headquarters in Atlanta. And they can already imagine, you know, a campaign headquarters on Auburn Avenue, right near the birthplace of of Martin Luther King Jr. near the MLK historic site. That was not to be, though. She she decided to put her campaign headquarters elsewhere in Baltimore rather than rather than Atlanta. Uh, it would have just been symbolic, because you know she she's odds are she would not be at the campaign headquarters that much anyway but that was a you know seen as a little bit of a blow to georgia democrats it's not a the end of the world or anything like that but there was a lot of excitement about a harris candidacy that would put its roots here in atlanta on a separate note entirely to talk about other big questions and i guess it does dovetail a little bit with stacy abrams but georgia's voting voting machine issues and how it also Involves the federal debate. What we one of the biggest things we saw with Brian Kemp's opening couple days in office was he made no mention whatsoever of of the voting rights issues that controversial or not. You know, some of them are not controversial, some of them are. But ranging from the purge to long lines to uh, you know just uneven standards for for counting provisional and absentee ballots, um, he he did not include any of that in his. State of the State or inaugural address or any of his opening first week agenda items. But what he did include was $150 million in, in new voting, uh, in money for new voting machines. And that's going to be one of the hottest topics to debate, not just in Atlanta, but uh, the voting rights issues in, in, in Washington too, right, Tamar? Yeah, exactly. Nancy Pelosi and, and House Democrats in their first big symbolic bill. It's called HR1. It, it's kind of, it's more a symbolic thing than, than anything. So it's a massive package that includes a bunch of ethics reform measures. They want to um, take take uh, steps to end partisan gerrymandering, all this stuff. But there's a big voting rights component to that as well. In addition, there's also a bunch of money in there for states who want to impl- improve election security measures, including buying new voting machines, which is something that there is going to be a ton of action on in Georgia this year. Um, we saw earlier this month, I guess, a panel formed by Brian Kemp uh, made its recommendations for the kinds of voting machines they want Georgia to to get um, in, in the next few years. And, and everyone agrees that paper ballots are important to kind of maintain the integrity of the system. But this panel was criticized a lot because they, they wanted a computerized system that printed out paper ballots rather than than paper ballots that people would, would fill out by hand. Um, so talk to me, Greg, about what their recommendations are going to mean for the legislature as, as they kind of make a, a final decision in the months ahead. Yeah, and there was another big endorsement for that type of machine by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who just took office a couple of weeks ago. So he's also on board with that same system. And now the debate goes to lawmakers who have to sign off on legislation that would that would uh, kind of oversee how these machines are, are implemented and also the budget that appropriates the $150 million for those machines, um, the clock is ticking and it's and it's becoming increasingly uncertain whether or not those machines will be in place by the 2020 presidential election. And meanwhile, there are a half dozen or so federal lawsuits challenging varying voting practices, including one from Stacey Abrams' new group, Verified Action. So there's a lot of things, there's a lot of different elements hanging over lawmakers as they're trying to debate these machines. And it's really interesting to see how the Democrats are reacting to all this because um, 
there's a broad consensus among Democrats, of course, for voting rights changes, but um, it's more uncertain whether or not Democrats will band together and support one voting machine type over the other because it is such a, a a complicated debate. And at the same time, there's more reporting being done by the AJC and the New Yorker, which found uh, lobbyists and and uh, and people tied to Brian Kemp's office who were former lobbyists or associated with those giant voting rights of, of, uh, of, of voting uh, uh, manufacturers, voting machine manufacturers to create these 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 very complicated and very costly machines, and of course they they're fighting for these very lucrative contracts. It's going to be really interesting to see how much Washington wants to meddle in all of this. You know, House Democrats they're super empowered. They they think they have a mandate. Not only that, but because of how much national attention the Kemp Abrams race got, I think people feel like they they want to get really involved in this. We saw Elijah Cummings, the new chairman of the House Oversight Committee, mention that he wants to bring Brian Kemp in to testify about serving as Secretary of State while running for governor. Um, You've even heard from a a key Republican in the House where he kind of hinted in a letter to a a Democrat on this committee that that they might have found irregularities in in Georgia. They sent election monitors down um, for Election Day, and and he mentioned some irregularities that that they might want to investigate. Not only that, but there's a broader push overall to make changes to the Voting Rights Act. But but Democrats want to leave a paper trail. They're trying to adhere to this big Supreme Court decision a few years ago that... um, that basically knocked down two sections of the Voting Rights Act. So they're very conscientious about how they can build the legal case to, to kind of bring back some portions of the law. So it'll be really interesting to see just how involved they get and how quickly. You got it. There was a big stir a couple of days ago when the, a special house uh, subcommittee devoted to voting rights announced field hearings um, all over the nation. And, and Georgia is not the only state where, where these issues are looming large. Um, but one of the spots was expected to be uh, Metro Atlanta or Georgia. And um, subpoenas, I was told the subpoenas could be likely for those hearings. So uh, keep your eyes and ears close to the ground on this one because this could get really interesting. No kidding. Well, the next question we want to tackle and the next question we're, we're watching for this year is how the GOP makes up lost ground of the suburbs. And Tamar, you, you touched on this. Um, we're already seeing signs of it from David Perdue, but it's not just David Perdue who has to worry about this. Um, it's it's Rob Woodall, and it's whoever challenges who ends up whoever ends up challenging Lucy McBath, and of course it's going to be President Trump because he'll need a strong showing from the suburbs too because it's getting harder and harder to offset suburban losses with with high rural turnout. Not only that, but it's Brian Kemp who um, you know you've written a ton about how we we kind of saw two sides to him as he was running for governor, and as he sets the agenda over the next two years, it's going to be interesting to see which Brian Kemp we we get. You know, when he was running for the Republican nomination, you saw him lean into a lot of these very um, red meat popular proposals with the base, you know, tightening abortion restrictions, uh, more access to guns, that sort of thing. You're talking a lot about illegal immigration. But then as he was running more in in the general election, he was talking about rural hospital tax credits, teacher pay, school safety, infrastructure. you know, and he has his partner in the legislature in, in uh, David Ralston, who's, who's mentioned that he has less of an appetite for, for working on really kind of a divisive social legislation mm-hmm. and more of an interest in doing stuff that, that he can get a little more consensus on. The red meat is off the menu so far. And um, it's 
a lot of suburban Republicans in the legislature are breathing a mighty sigh of relief so far. And I keep on saying so far because we're only a couple of days into the legislative session. And what we were told by legislative leaders is essentially it's part of it's a Super Bowl thought. I mean, part of it's Brian kept coming in on a, with a more conciliatory approach after a hyper-partisan campaign. And you're not hearing him talk about any other than you know his support for Second Amendment. You're not hearing him talk about any sort of specific proposals that he promised way back when on the campaign trail, from illegal immigration crackdowns to abortion restrictions and so on. And part of it's also the big game coming up. And you know, Atlanta wants to put its best face on for the Super Bowl on February 3rd. And um Metro Atlanta chamber leaders, state leaders, legislative leaders, they're all very worried that some proposal about religious liberty or banning abortion or you name it, that pops up between now and then, even if it's fated to go nowhere in the in the, in the legislature, would, would get a lion's share of the attention and kind of cast a pall over the uh, the big game. Exactly. And, and issues like this have a way of popping up and kind of throwing a wrench into the best laid plans. Yep. We saw, remember, the bathroom bill, I guess, two years ago when that came up in it was North, North Carolina. Carolina. You had last year, I mean, who would have thought Delta tax credits would have been the kind of dominant social issue after they, after the airline canceled a, a special agreement it had with the NRA um, and, and group membership. So you never know what's around the corner. And of course, you had a really long standing fight with over adoption laws in Georgia um, over one measure that would have maybe given private adoption agencies uh, more more power to turn away uh, uh, you know potential um, families based on religious beliefs and so that 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 debate seems to have been put to rest last year with a, a law that was signed without that controversial provision in it but you know every year brings a new social debate as you mentioned and it'd be it'd be stunning to see nothing of that sort come up this year especially after Brian Kemp did make such a big part of his of, of his campaign especially during the primary and runoff about being the most conservative guy on the ballot one issue we're almost going to certainly spend a lot of time writing about this year is um, is health care you know, we talked about Brian Kemp appointing former health secretary Tom Price to his um, to his transition team. And he recently said his administration would request a federal waiver um, to, to get flexibility to use Medicaid dollars to cover more people. So that's a way to tap into Obamacare money without going, you know, without the full enchilada, without the full cost to the state. And so that'll be something the legislature will be mulling over the next few months. Yeah, he devoted about a million dollars in the budget towards developing a waiver. And when when asked about it in an interview, he immediately brought up Tom Price as sort of an example of why this is a good idea. So it leads us to believe, just put, connecting the very obvious dots together, that Tom Price could somehow be involved in this million-dollar process to develop a waiver. But um, that remains to be seen. But in general, this is a way for Republicans to be able to say they're doing something on health care. Uh, yet another AJC poll that came out last week showed a overwhelming majority of Georgians supports expanding Medicaid. This poll said it was about 71, 72% of Georgians. It's been the Democratic, uh, the Democrats' biggest issue, I think. You know, it's the, it's, it's ever since Jason Carter ran in 2014, it's been the constant drumbeat of expand Medicaid, expand Medicaid, expand Medicaid. House Minority Leader Bob Trammell. Uh, was was the chief author of a bill insisting that Georgia would should expand Medicaid. Of course, it's not going to go anywhere in the Republican-led legislature, but 
he dropped the bill a couple of days ago and he was able to get a fiscal note that he passed along to me. And it, the fiscal note shows the net cost of this is about $200 million by 2022 to get about 600,000 or so more people on the Medicaid rolls. Republicans say that's still too expensive and there's no guarantee that the federal government will continue to pick up 90% of the tab by then. Democrats say it's $200 million is, is kind of a drop in the bucket to them uh, to, 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 to cover 600,000 or so new people and to generate other economic activity around that. Stacey Abrams always said during her campaign that just by expanding Medicaid alone, you'd create tens of thousands of new jobs. So this continues to be probably the biggest policy divide over healthcare in Georgia, period. The thing about this, kind of tying up this entire podcast, um, you know, Republicans really suffered in the suburbs last year. And, and Stacey Abrams, one of her biggest issues was talking about Medicaid expansion. And that was an issue that seemed to really resonate with suburban women, especially. But but a lot of people in the suburbs where it flipped from red to blue. This is clearly an attempt from the Republicans to try and get those folks back on board, show they are listening, but do it in a way that um, is more conservative friendly. And that kind of dovetails with our final question of the year, which is how will Democrats leverage that new power in Georgia? And with the Medicaid expansion debate we're already seeing, uh, they're insisting. They're, they're, I, I wouldn't even say that's necessarily a different approach, but it's part of it's part and parcel to the to the Democratic Party of Georgia's core philosophy in Georgia, which which involves tailoring a message, tailoring a message around Medicaid expansion, and uh, it's something that they don't see as liberal or progressive or anything they, they see as mainstream. But they're also going to be take a much, taking a much more confrontational approach toward toward Brian Kemp. There's there's not you're not going to see much of a honeymoon period with Kemp in office. Exactly. You've already, I mean, you saw it within um, you know in the days leading up to to Kemp's inauguration. Uh, you know, heightened criticism from the party and continuing to bash him as if he was still just campaigning and not about to be the sitting governor. Um, the, the party right now, DuBose Porter is leaving his position as chairman. We have state senator Nakima Williams, who's kind of his deputy, who's seen as the favorite to replace him. What are you expecting to see out of her, Greg, should she get this position? Yeah. And by the time you you guys hear this podcast, um, she will probably be the Democratic Party chair when the, that meeting is. This is this podcast is being taped Friday. That meeting is Saturday and I'll be there um, along with our colleague, Maya Prabhu. Um, but no, she she's one of Stacey Abrams' top deputies. She represents one of the most liberal, probably the most liberal state Senate district in Georgia. And that was, that was the seat once held by Vincent Fort, who uh, was famed as a, uh, I don't think he'd be insulted by saying this, this is kind of a, a grenade thrower. Like he, he was not afraid to challenge power um, and was often, in fact, arrested um, at protests. For, for, for challenging power. And Nakima Williams herself, she would, did not intend to go out to get arrested like Vincent Fort did sometimes, but but she actually was arrested at a protest too at the Georgia State House. So expect to see, um, I, I talked to her about this. I wouldn't say the word aggressive because that can have a, uh, can have a negative connotation, but a much more confrontational, I guess, approach, a, a much edgier approach, um, willing to much more quickly question Republican motives and actions in a way that uh, you know you hadn't seen a lot during during Nathan Deal's second term, mostly because he didn't take on some of these very contentious conservative policies in his second term, and he even vetoed the religious liberty bill. Um, you're you're going to see a very different viewpoint and approach from from Georgia Democrats from here on out. 
I'm going to be especially curious to see how they message on these Medicaid waivers, because the position that that Kemp and the Republicans are taking, if they indeed pursue this, is kind of a middle ground. You know, you're kind of halfway getting to Medicaid expansion, which is, of course, what Democrats ultimately want to see. Are they willing to work with Kemp as he seeks a waiver or if he chooses to seek a waiver? Or are they going to fight this tooth and nail from the beginning in the pursuit of getting a full waiver later. Yeah, I interviewed about a half dozen leading Democrats right after the wa- the waiver speech um, a couple of days ago, and yeah, the answers varied. I mean, uh, Calvin Smyrie, the 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 most veteran lawmaker under the Gold Dome, said it was a good first step. It was a positive sign that Kemp is willing to negotiate and kind of move towards even a small step towards expansion. Uh, whereas other Democrats, including the the one of the top Democrats in the state Senate, Emmanuel Jones, um, and Harold Jones, both the Joneses um, in the state Senate, both said nothing short of expansion is acceptable. Um, and and that, that was also House Minority Leader Bob Trammell's take, is that it's expansion or nothing. Well, Tamar, thank you so much for joining us this week. As we looked ahead to the next uh, 11 or so months, uh, and <laughs> we're gonna we have a lot on our plate. We're gonna we have our hands full. This is gonna be a fun year. Oh man, we got to get through this shutdown first, Greg. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. Maybe <laughs> by the time our listeners hear this, we might have had a little bit more progress on the shutdown. We'll see. Well, thanks again, Tamar. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to ajc.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.